should we actually start with caregiving with the end in mind? And how can somebody who's dying actually help us to? Well, maybe we all really do have a job right to the end. Stay tuned, you might be surprised. Welcome to Doing It Best with Elder Care Success, where we explore ways to relieve the stress, exhaustion, and overwhelm that we all face in caring for an aging parent, frail spouse, or partner. Fear, frustration, emotional and financial strain does not have to be your MO. Stay tuned as we dive into different and new ways of finding more joy together with those that we love and care for and while keeping our feet solid on the ground. Hang tight, there is a better road ahead. Hello everybody, it's Nancy May, doing it best with elder care success. And this is a rather unique show where I have my guest here today is Jean Denny, who is a somatic therapist who specializes in using body-based therapies through the whole life transition of end of life. And although we as caregivers are focused on making the life of the person that we're caring for better, we're also dealing with the reality as much as whether we want to admit it or not is the reality of them leaving us, which is incredibly hard to face. But Jean has a very unique way of approaching this. She is a whole life doula and teacher and author and founder of the School of Unusual Life and Learning. With that short intro, I'm going to let you take it away here, Jean, because I want to know a little bit about the school and what is a whole life doula and unusual life learning. I think all of our life lessons are somewhat unusual and unique, (laughs) but this is a little bit more special than... (laughs) thinking that there's something else there. I don't know. Tell me about it. Yeah. Well, maybe it's a little more crazy. I don't know. But yes, I did start this project called the School of Unusual Life Learning, or sometimes we call it SOUL. And because I was a somatic therapist and a hospice worker and a person that helped people with grief and the transformations of grief and care in elders, and I saw that this was very much a missing piece If people don't know what somatic therapy or somatic psychology is, it's a type of therapy and psychology that works with the mind and body and consciousness as a unity. And I'm very grateful that I had that particular background. And I started that way so that I was looking at all these processes together when my mother died, actually. And I started hospice work soon after with lots of questions about what was really happening in this interface between as people were dying and all the room around them and all the relationships around them. So it was a marvelous launching pad for all of my questions, being with end of life and being in somatic therapy. And so I evolved with those two things together. And then I saw that somatic therapy had none of these theories in them. And I started evolving the theories and then eventually started teaching it and saying, wow, this is pretty powerful for people. So where we are with it now is we have a little school that instead of just teaching about birth doulas to be birth doulas or death doulas to be death doulas, we're looking at the entire life process, which is essentially teaching people to be somatic therapists, but also in a three-year training. We're also teaching them what the patterns are within all these processes and how to be really present for people in this passage. Uh, One of them, of course, is death and dying and to be less afraid. You mentioned the process and everything around them or them, meaning the person that's dying and ourselves as the caregivers. And what came to mind was my own experience thinking, 
There's so much going on in the room and in the house at the time that both mom and dad were passing that as I look back now, I'm thinking not intentionally, but I think we almost forgot that they were there. We were so busy with the process of what we had to do to help them that they almost became a non-entity. And that was not that we wanted it that way, right? but it's the activity, it's the busyness, it's everything where if I had the ability to be more, as you say, present more frequently. I mean, there are times we have to stop and go through the hospice intake and deal with a call or a question or everything else. But if I could be more there. Yeah. Not just for them, but for myself too. Absolutely. That is what we're teaching people to do. And and in fact, we're so unprepared Mm. for this passage both from the child perspective, the caregiver perspective, and for the dying patient perspective, we arrive at this passage so unprepared that, of course, we grasp at the to-dos because we know how to do life, and that's what we do, and that's what we think we have to do. And it's a tremendous burden for people, no question all the things. And yet, this presence, this ability to then stop and sit and recognize that something is happening here that's silent, that's nonverbal, that is important to everyone concerned. You know, that's part of what doulas do is make the space, create the environment where that part can be honored. You know, and and it's also frightening at times, too, because this is not something we deal with day in and day out, but it is, it's part of who we are as living creatures, whether we're a dog, a cat, an elephant, a giraffe, a a, a vegetable. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, you come out of the earth, you're born, and you wither and die. That's just part of a cell. Yet, it's frightening at the same time because we're not taught to deal with it. And exactly. Is there, any, a- is there any way that we can even just approach the, the fear factor, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's what soul's doing is trying to help people with that. Because it doesn't really take much to turn the screw and help us see life as the continuum that it is and the process that it is. But we have to have that education. And in a certain way, the entire culture has shut that down so that we we really do believe there's a cliff out there we're going to fall over in the great unknown and we can't possibly know anything about it. And and they're now they're dead and, and there's nothing I can do to connect with them now. And all of this is nonsense. You can be a very rational person. You don't have to believe in the woo, but you just have to look carefully what the body's showing you, consciousness is showing you, what research is showing you, even about near-death experiences and reincarnation and so on. We know a lot about what consciousness does through dying. And when you learn that, and through grieving, by the way, when you learn that, you relax. You just see the air come out of the anxiety balloon and people suddenly feel like, oh, I do know this. My body knows this. The vegetable, you know this. So, so do I. So why are we so afraid of this? We've been taught to be. So it's a societal thing. It's not just, you think well, of, like the Buddhists are not afraid of it. Well, too, I, or I maybe so. they say they're not afraid of it, right? Yeah, I don't know. They practice working with it, which is brilliant. It's, I think it was been part of what we considered initiation throughout history. And being an adult was to understand what this death thing was. There's part of it. It's organismic, right? We react in fear it, it, if our de- our life is right turned. is it gonna hurt like what, what yeah, do we yeah, expect all, all of, it, of course but the real teaching about what's going on here with this life process this was part of our human 
birthright to know this throughout our history until a certain point. I, I don't know when the point was changed, maybe patriarchy, maybe it was the Black Death, where there was so much unprocessed trauma, but for some reason we got the idea that death and life were separate things. And I think that core assumption is something I teach in the school. That is the core, <laughs> what I call the misconception or the, the false dichotomy running our culture that isn't true. And when we see death as really a part, a necessary part of life and all of these movements within even illness and as something that we can understand a little bit about and know how to work with, we get less anxious about everything. And that helps a lot. So I see the aspect of becoming less anxious helping caregivers. There's got to be something else that besides I'll call it chilling out because it's more than chilling out. That can help us as caregivers to be better support for the person who is going through this life passing. What can we do? What are some tips to say, Nancy, if you're going through this, here are three things that you can do or even just one thing that I can do to just be there for somebody and make it a more gentle process for both of us? Yeah, well... I do think we have to confront our own beliefs and images around what this process is as part of that to do, because unless you can, unless you do that, you can't be very present. So can you, I'm going to stop you there a second. So my own images and beliefs of what this looks like or what this is, explain that a little bit more because I'm kind of, I'm kind of lost there. Is, is it just like my own head trash or what I'm told in movies or, or what all is of, it? All of the above, all of the above. We arrive at the death and grief process or the caregiving process with all kinds of unexamined material. This is the main reason I, I'm not a hospice volunteer. I decided to be an educator because I saw that people were coming to the experience full of things they had no capacity and no support at really examining and trying to do all this catch-up work educationally at the bedside. And it's overwhelming both for the patient and for the caregiver. Does that make sense? Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, Yeah. I'm almost thinking of around the holiday times. I used to be scared to death to watch the old, I think it's Arthur Finley, Scrooge, because the grim rubric came. It was dark. It was everything. I mean, the Scrooge was beyond being Scrooge. It was all about facing death and missing out on life, really, is what it was, right? right. And And you frightened in there. You can scare the opposition. Here's life. It's good. There's death. It's bad. Yeah. Yeah. And it was dark and it was great. It was like, oh, scared the hell out of me. But as you're talking, those are the images that come immediately into my mind. And you and a lot of other people. And I don't think that's gotten any better since the time we were kids, because what I saw when I was teaching in college, uh, you know, 22 year olds, is they would come in with, without any background, never having been to a funeral, never having been given a picture of this is the natural way. I mean, I grew up in a more rural place where people are growing and planting things. Many kids have no connection to nature. They learn about death through video games and very hyper-dramatized media stuff that has created anxiety in order to hook people in certain ways. And so it's so can, removed from reality, death, right? Death, death, I mean, you don't see a dog die, unfortunately, because we want to be there, but you take them to the vet and the you're not there with them. I mean, I... I would never do that, but um, 
you know, yeah. the, it was it was hard to be yeah. there with my animal to going through this process. Yeah. And that's, you know, animal and people, I guess it's a little different. People might think, okay, it's like, you know, get, well, get a dose. Right? I mean, people take people to hospitals to die, for example. You know, it's like, oh, you need to go there. And then or uh, so it, we do have this image that death is some foreign country that we go to and we resist it as long as possible because it's a bad place and bad thing. And, right. So on. So and it's ugly, well, and it's not ugly necessarily. Ugly, and well, it depends on how much support you have around that. But right. Of course, it can be challenging, but I think we try to normalize a lot of things and see death so much as part of life. In fact, the reality is, and this is what being with dying taught me, the reality is that without some kind of death education that's sensible and real and natural. We don't have a very good life either, and we have a lot of misconceptions. So I try to bring this to all full through the life, not just try to help people at end of life because it's almost too late. You know, I mean, it's like, yeah, it's like a third grader in a calculus test. Right. It's, and and kids are work. curious about this, right? When somebody They're, dies and yeah. they don't know how to ask questions. I was in that role myself, and I'm using myself as a, a, a guinea pig in example. And I yeah. remember when my sister died when she was three and I was about five. My mother later on as an adult, as I got older, told me, gosh, you drove me nuts. All you kept on asking was why, why, why? And she could, my mom couldn't answer that because yeah. she yeah. had, a, my sister had childhood yeah. leukemia and she yeah. was grappling with the problem and yeah. the questions of why too. So here I'm annoying, this annoying child that she's going to take care of and she can't even deal with her own issues. Yeah. How I I wish I wish I knew at at that stage in my life how to be of support to my mom when I you know as a kid I didn't even know what the yes. answers were themselves. So, but it was buried under under the carpet, so to speak, yeah. and we didn't talk about it, and and that was it. So I understand that, but it is a curiosity I think for kids, and if we were able to talk about it more even from the beginning, it might be easier on us. Well. Losing somebody to to death, whether it be an accident or just old age, is never easy, right? Because they're gone. We can't physically talk to them and hear them talk back. Well, I guess you can hear them talk back in some way, shape, or form. Well, yeah. But I don't know how to practice that one, so you'll have to teach me that. <laughs> <laughs> well, starts by opening the door of possibility. Being more aware. So we talked a little bit about the caregiving process. But what about those that are dying? Because you've been in the hospice world as well. And how is this different than hospice, which is giving medication and helping with the process and helping with the anxiety? And it's focused on, on my interpretation, it's focused on the process and getting it over with. That's a terrible way of saying it, but these are the only way I can think about it, right? And making mm. it gentle in their well, terms. But yeah. it is sort of like, let's get this over with so we can well, we can move on. You know, hospice has evolved a lot since right. Lee Saunders back in the 1950s and 60s to now. One of the great evolutions of it was in a very recent history has pretty much been medicalized and taken and absorbed into the medical system. It did not start that way. It started very much as honoring death as a process, as kindness, as trying to help people have quality of life rather than length of life or trying to save or cure. So this was mm -hmm. a great helping that relaxation around this is natural this is normal this is going to happen and supporting the meaning and the the beauty of that process which was 
quite beautiful. You had people like Stephen Levine and all the Buddhists and the people that were that came in to really celebrate the process itself and teach about it. Um, when it became medicalized, as it is now, or professionalized from the business, but I think I heard that seventy percent of hospice organizations are now owned by a for-profit corporation. Yes. Yeah, and that changed it radically. I mean, they realized there was money to be made and they didn't want to be out of the action, let's face it. Right. So the hospital paradigm is not that, is not integrated care model like hospice kind of is. And, and it kind of has, let's get this, that let's get it over let's with. Get let's get it over with, right? And, and, and people, of course, now, because of the death fear we have and the denial, the level of death denial we have, because we will fight everything to the end, we will give people trials until their last 15 minutes trying to save. And that's the reality that we live in. And people get on hospice only a few days before. So it really is the very, very end, not the last six months of life like it was. Right. So hospice has changed a lot. And the death toll is coming in to help people create a beautiful passage to help support the family to do the things that we need support around, just like birth doulas and postpartum doulas is a great evolution and the amount of death awareness that's happening now in the culture a little bit at a time people are recognizing we've got to talk about this death thing i mean our planet is on the brink you know and, and maybe this somehow this death thing seems important to because our denial is part of what has been the problem here so yeah. i mean pulled away from our naturalness so i think this is all going on in the culture and it's very positive and helpful but hospice has changed forms. I think, I think we need another word other than death so that we're not so afraid of that word. <laughs> like, yeah, we well, need to come out with some other word. like No, and it's like palliative care replaced hospice. But then people start fearing palliative care. Exactly, right? It's like, oh, my God, don't, like, ooh, yeah. The problem yeah. is our fear. The problem is our fear, whatever we call it. And what our fear of, of our naturalness and what's going to happen to us after death. So I think... I'm in there trying to say, let's address that. Let's help people be with people. Let's help people be in their lives. Let's help people at all stages of life. Because, of course, death processes are not isolated to this end of life thing, nor are our grief processes. They're going on all the time. This is like, boom, there's a lot going on here. And we could talk about this forever. Or at least I could. <laughs> and you could probably yeah. do too. <laughs> not to be obsessed about something, but... There's so much to learn in what we don't know, right? It's, I don't know what I don't know, so tell me more kind of thing. And yeah, they always yeah. say that in, in career and business. But this is, this is different. So the death doula is different than the hospice person, is yeah. different than, you know, the, the grieving. How does this all work together? Because I know about birth doulas. And what does a, a death doula do for us? That hospice doesn't necessarily do, and um, the oh. death doula and what you do is is a little bit oh, on the on the cusp of being almost the same thing or overlapping. I would well, say, right? I would say what I'm doing is more general to life. <clears throat> but we also, of course, help people be very much more present at a bedside. Death doulas are not, and all doulas are non medical. That's the first thing. Okay. So as our medical system has become more and more mechanized, more and more industrial, more and more profit driven and corporate driven. There is definitely a need for the softer aspects. We all want to be in a human loving environment and a care environment that involves other human beings caring about us. We don't want a mechanized AI environment for our healthcare, do we? I, I don't want to die like that. 
So that human touch and that human perception and the kindness and that there isn't certainly is a know-how that doesn't mean there's not a know-how to how to be with people but i do think it's coming very much more of the deep feminine rather than this kind of rather if i can say masculine business model that we're in medicine sure all doula work comes out of the knowledge of women have always done the birth and death work in this world and have watched the processes and have tended and cared. And so whether you're male or female, the doula wisdom comes out of that presence and visceral understanding of another. So that's what we're teaching. And whether it's being with somebody grieving and supporting, whether it's being with a dying patient, whether it's being with a 22-year-old that's suicidal, whether it's being with somebody who just retired or got fired at 65. These are all great big psychological, physical processes that we're in. Grief is a physiological, somatic process. Yeah, it's a very physical process for sure. And I don't think that people who have not gone through this particular stage really understand how taxing it is on the body when you go through this. Yeah, it's a Right, whether you've lost a child or a spouse or a parent or another loved one that you're, or even an animal that you're attached to. It is physically draining. Yeah. And you didn't do anything. <laughs> it's Which well, is fascinating. I mean, you, I guess you have, but you haven't, right? But it's a major change. It's a major psychosomatic change to your system. So we have to recalibrate after that. That is part of the theory we're working on is what is really going on in these processes. And I don't want to leave your listeners without any to-dos. I know we started with the to-do. Right. Well, what are the to-dos we could do? And, and let's just start with that one. The recognition that if we are in lived relationship with somebody who's going through a major transition such as death, we are going to be going through it with them. So we may want to do the shopping and the cleaning and the and care and empty the bedpans and so on. But we also have to honor that our body and psyche is changing alongside with, and we may need other people to help us go through that part and take up the slack so that we can really be present in the relationship. A little bit of us is leaving this world too. When a somebody little bit that we of love, that right? is exactly right. Everybody needs to die a little bit with the dying person and then also have a community bring them back in because we don't want to literally die. We don't want to get ill. Often people do. It's important that we die a little bit with people, have that time, and also important that we reground in our bodies and say and, and reclaim our lives. So those are processes as a grief doula, let's say, that we'd be looking at is how to help people fully go through the process and return and there's a lot to that in the body, the things that you need, the exhaustion you talk about. Right. Being with nature is something that very much helps people. Being with people that have the presence that can be with you there very much helps people. It's interesting. When, when Dad passed, there was a social worker who came from hospice and said, so, you know, what do you need? It was really in, in trying to help us have the conversation with Mom who had dementia that Dad had passed. Now, she had known because we brought her to his bedside and she cried and she grieved and then she just shut it off. But It was yeah. part of her yeah. way of probably healing. And I would say healing, but taking care of herself without us even knowing what was happening. Uh -huh. But the social worker 
who I didn't particularly I'll admit, <laughs> just cold and harsh and process oriented, just said, Nancy, you've been taking care of everybody else. You go to the beach and just go cry. It's like, you don't know me. One, I don't like the beach. Two, I don't cry really well. And three, <laughs> the healing part for me is being here. You mentioned community. Yeah. Where the community could bring the healing part for me was better to be with mom, with my sister, with the aides that were with me, as opposed to yeah. separating me. Yes. And yeah. that's that. Yeah. So I think that as a social worker, she brought. <laughs> but that that said, it's the aspect of community that caught my attention in your words, because so many of us learn to separate ourselves from the rest of our community or our friends and our networks. Yeah. It's network yeah. is a cold term, but society, whether it's church or friends or social groups and communities, when we're going through this process. Yeah. And to integrate back into them and just like it started all over, like go go back to normal is hard. That said, I'm trying to find the right words. I'm worried that too many of us are removing ourselves to protect ourselves or get so overwhelmed in the process of caregiving and this death part that we are never able to go back to that society or the society doesn't know how to come back to us. I would right? say just hit on the real thing. This is the other part of it. If a society does not receive and understand death processes and grief processes, it also can't receive you and hold you in it. So and bring what, you back when it's okay, right? Yes. And what do grievers do and caregivers do? More often than not, they do separate themselves. Why? Because they're groups that they go into. They're in places and psyches, psychological spaces that the groups they go into can't hold, don't know what to do with. And it is more uncomfortable to be in a group like that than it is to separate with your own pain. And but I do. So wait, not, I'm going to hold you. So it's more uncomfortable to be in a group of other grievers. No, a group of just say you know how people invite people out when they're in grief. Right. No, let's go oh, to dinner. Let's. And then what do you talk it. about? And there you are in your grief, and no one can really hold space for you because they don't know how to hold that space. They mm -hmm. aren't developed there. And so you have the job of containing it and acting normal. That's stressful. Okay. That's a lot for of For both work parties. For every for everybody, right. but mainly for the griever. Right. Who feels some kind of social contract that they need to look like they're up and good and doing well and taking care of everybody else. So it does feel to me like grievers more often than not are taking care of everybody else rather than being actually supported in their grief. So what are some things that we can do to help somebody who is grieving other than you send a card and do that and then they say, don't give up on the griever a couple of weeks after because they need you more later on. And I believe yeah. that. But what do you say? I'm sorry. That's well, not going to help much, right? Well, I, I, I guess. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's so much what you say. I, I, you know, students would come in always. I'd say, why are you taking this class death and dying? They'd say, because I want to know what to say. As if there's a rule book out there, you know, it's about the presence. It's a people know when they're with somebody that can tolerate their grief and go with them a little bit into it or not. And it's more about developing within yourself. You know, I'm willing today to go sit with Nancy and just hang out, bring her some soup and just kind of be, sure. let her talk or not let her talk, not say, oh, how is it? Or even... Oh, are you doing, you know, a demand that you be up and, and doing well, right? Mm -hmm. But just kind of willing to touch that. And that is just to touch on a point you made earlier. 
about what they bring us. Both dying patients and grievers bring us an opportunity to open to parts of ourselves we're afraid of, to open to parts of life that we, we normally don't touch. And so to take the opportunity to really, um, touch into the grief space with somebody is a blessing. And, uh, what we can do is do our own work and try to be there with them. Just hang out, light, take a walk. It's going to be uncomfortable because you don't know what to say. And, and filling the yeah. em- empty space is is okay. You don't have to fill the empty space. Yeah, exactly. Just let's go out. And if the person wants to talk about the person who's died, let them do it. Or don't try and, I guess, redirect the conversation into politics or something else. <laughs> Well, no. you, you brought up a really good example in your social worker a minute ago. I mean, not having an agenda for the person, like to be up or not to be up, to be crying right now. Do they, they're not grieving right? We have all kinds of crazy ideas about what we think grief is and should be, what we think people should be doing. And just to be present with your energy, with your heart, and acknowledge this is happening for you. And I would like to be here for you. I don't know what that is. I don't even know how, but I'm willing to show up. That's a huge statement right there. Just being willing to show up is something that we have. And it's a blanket statement. I think we've forgotten how to do with so much technology and everything around us. Just being able to shut things off for a while and say, okay, today is a no tech day. And don't try not to let your head chatter go into, oh, my God, tomorrow I'm going to have like 50,000 emails to deal with. But it's, you know, it's okay. Just hit delete, 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 delete. Oh, that's the boss. No, don't delete that one. (laughs) Kind of thing. (laughs) Well, it's a training. And I guess that's how I got started doing a school because I realized it so much and people needed a place to do the work. So that's one opportunity. The other, if you're in the situation, I just really would say, know that there are lots of different kinds of support and that you need a lot of different kinds of support. And ask your friends for what it is you want. Right. Knowing how to ask is a very hard thing that we have gotten also out of. And uh, just recognizing that there are there are some signs that we need to be aware of, of our own heavy heart, how the person dying might feel sad too that they're leaving. I, I, I felt it with my dad. It was just sort of, I would say, it wasn't anything he said because he was really not saying much of anything that, other than he wanted clam chowder, so, <laughs> which made me smile. I would say my dad's sense was he was disappointed to be leaving. Mm, yeah. It's the only way I can describe it. He was disappointed yeah. to be leaving my mom more than anything, not my sister and myself, but that, that mom and dad were not going to be there uh, together. Yeah. Whether he could he could help her or not, it didn't matter. Just yes, that he yes, was there yes. at her side, and I think those are those are the signs that that I saw. But it's tough. It's tough. Are there two or three things that you can say that we can wrap up with that can help us better understand this time of life, so that we can be there for ourselves, and then be there for those that are going through this end of life transition. I will try to say a couple of things. One is that everything that's happening is part of nature and is normal. Maybe not everything happening in the medical arena. I don't know. Sometimes people get traumatized by that. But dying is normal. Grieving is normal. It is natural. And sometimes just knowing that nothing has gone wrong exactly 
But what everybody's trying to do, including your dad in that example, everybody is trying to get their story to finish the way they want it to finish. Everybody has got a story that they're working on. We don't even realize we have it. We don't even realize that we want the ending we want, right, with dad or mom. But we might even just look into whether it's a part of a story that's going to continue and doesn't have to be perfect right at the end. Nothing has to be perfect. And there's times after someone dies, too, to do healing with them, in my view. I think that really helps people and people to realize there are ways, writing letters, talking to the chair, going outside to the place, and allowing yourself to say what didn't get to be said. Many people have regrets. I didn't say this. I didn't hear this from them. So even opening up to hearing something from somebody who has died in some unusual way that very often grieving people know about this way of symbolically receiving unusual signs and things. I remember Elizabeth Kubler-Ross talking about her husband. He had talked about this, I'll leave you some kind of roses. I was another reference, but after he died, somehow a dozen roses landed on her doorstep. I mean, how does that happen, really? Right. Well, the synchronous space when you're a griever and, and to open to it, let yourself be transported, let yourself be upheld and try not to be afraid. If you're not actively caregiving, try to get some education somewhere. There are a lot of venues and opportunities now. It will help you turn toward this passage without, with less fear. Those are so important words. Are such an, the, I'm not getting it out right, but the statement of just listening and watching and trying to, to realize that it's perfect is is not a word that you talk about this, right? It's, and, and that life actually does continue for them afterwards. Now, it may be not in, in the, the woo-woo spiritual, we don't know what happens afterwards, but just in your own life and words and what you share in your memories yes. and experiences, because the person, especially if it's a parent or a spouse, there's so much a part of who you are over time that their life really doesn't end as long as you're there. It just continues on in a different form. And I think that most people have that experience in some way or another. I like to say, in dying, the person that we love goes from being outside here in front of us to being somehow through our grief process internalized to live inside. That is the grieving process when it goes well as we carry them in our hearts and we know that they're there. That's the transformation. And the more I look at everything, the more it's very obvious that this is true. And you don't have to go into the woo to see it. But there also, if we can just close on this, there is really pretty remarkable research people should know about what happens to people after they die. And what at least the experiences they have are ecstatic. Even if they're dying, what looks like to us a miserable death. Oh my God, it was so much. Often people have very ecstatic experiences through the process. And that should give people comfort. See people that they that have passed things like that in the conversations that. Well, we're talking about near death experiencers and what they report the people that come back, and the research that's been done on that and what that process, the experience of that process is, as well as we have to look at reincarnation research, which actually blew my mind. What I didn't know how amazing it was, 
until I started to look at it. And this isn't about religion or belief. This is about really documented evidence of people, little children coming in, giving full descriptions of where they lived before and they're all checking out and having birthmarks where they were wounded and all kinds of things. So we, if we're all open-minded, we have to say, wow, there is some evidence here that maybe consciousness is not just one life, one and done. So anyway, I'll leave you with that, but uh, it does uh, help us somehow. Yeah, I always say that I was, I'm going to come back as a bluebird. <laughs> so <laughs> if you see a bluebird flying around at some point after I'm gone, that might be me. <laughs> My husband once said, snakes eat bluebirds. And I said, not this one. Anyway, thank you, Jean. This has been fabulous. I love the discussion. It's opened up even more questions for me. I'm sure it's opened up questions for everybody who's listening. So it's been an honor and a pleasure to have you here with me. And I look forward to future conversations. One more thing before we go. If you like this show, please share it with a friend, a family member, because it can be your gift to them. And this is my gift to you. So that's it for Doing It Best with Elder Gears Excess. We'll see you soon, or as I like to say, we'll hear you soon. Bye-bye. This show is sponsored by Caremanity, the publishers of How to Survive 911 Medical Emergencies, a step-by-step guide before, during, and after. For your own personalized free file of life, go to www.howtosurvive911.com. All trademarks, brands, and comments are not intended to be substitutes for medical, financial, or legal advice. Please consult a medical, legal, or financial professional for issues relevant to your own personal situation. This show is produced by Caremanity, LLC. All rights reserved. Copyright, Caremanity, LLC. 